So tonight I will be continuing the exploration of the Four Noble Truths, and if you've been counting, (laughs) Third Noble Truth tonight. And as I've been contemplating these teachings and um, reflecting on their (laughs) power, um, and the, the profundity of the Buddha's insight, and just how congruent they are, and how it's impossible to talk about one without the other. You can't talk about the first noble truth of suffering without talking about the end of suffering. You can't talk about craving without talking about suffering. You can't talk about freedom without talking about the fourth noble truth, truth and the path that leads to freedom and the cause of suffering. So they're so interwoven, but there's a way in which this particular truth is perhaps the most challenging for us because we're very familiar with, if not experts in the first two, suffering and craving, those we know. But here we're talking about something that we don't know if we know, or we don't know what's being pointed to, or if we've experienced it, as, as Guy said the other night about freedom. Will we know it when we see it? You know, what is it that we're talking about? What is it that we're looking for? One of my Tibetan teachers, Sangi Rinpoche, told this story um, about when he first was invited to come and teach in the West. And he was a very young man at the time, early, early mid-twenties perhaps. And he told his, his teachers in India that he'd had this invitation and they all kind of shook their head and said, you better watch out said, those Westerners are really sharp and they are going to ask you questions that you won't be able to answer and they're really going to nab you. You know, you're going to look like a fool, basically. So he came to teach in the West and, uh, you know, got getting used to the ways of these, this kind of retreat with all of these questions that people would ask. And he said that every time it was time to take questions and he'd see someone put up their hand, this little thought would will, will flash through, is this going to be the one that I can't answer? You know, and, and you could tell he was being very real about that nervousness that can be there. And I'm you know, sure it wasn't conscious all the time, but you know, is this going to be the one? And he said he had that thought every time until someone put up their hand and said, how will I know when I get enlightened? And he basically said, that was the stupidest question I've ever heard. So I knew from then on that I was not going to be caught out by these Westerners, that this is what they're... They don't even know, they don't even think they'll know when they get enlightened. But unfortunately, that is a little bit the case for us because <laughs> we, were, we, we didn't grow up in a Buddhist culture. You know, he, he, he was, his father was Tukuog and his brother was Mingyur Rinpoche's brother, other brother, Choknima, is steeped in, in these teachings. And for us, it can seem like a foreign language. Even the possibility of real freedom or real peace, we don't, we don't have a language for that. We don't really understand what's being pointed to. So we have lots of ideas we've gained from reading, from other teachers and teachings, and some surely from our own experience, but still there can be this sense of not quite knowing. And of course, in the mainstream media, uh, there's a real misunderstanding, but you can really tell that meditation is getting more mainstream. It's appearing regularly now in cartoons in the New Yorker. 
And so this is one I saw a while ago. It showed a couple watching television, and you could see, you know, the, it was the television saying this, blurring out something as they're sitting watching, and the, the caption was, This week on The Amazing Race to Enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness, and will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to self? So I don't know where you are on the amazing race to enlightenment. <laughs> but we'll see if we can clarify this a little bit this evening or perhaps do the opposite. And I'm quite prepared for both to happen. So the third noble truth. As I've said, each of these truths has three aspects. The, u- the first one usually is the recognition of this truth that there is the possibility of freedom. It's often translated as there is the cessation of suffering. There is this possibility. It's real. And then in the Buddha's um, first teaching, he talks about his relationship to this, and he says the cessation of dukkha should be realized. And then he says, and this is you know, part of this gesture, it has been realized. So there's this um, statement And then the aspiration, this is our practice to realize this possibility for ourselves. And then the affirmation, it has been realized. And each one has a part to play in this. Um, And especially the recognition of freedom when it appears to us, when we we have that experience, not to second-guess, doubt, or downplay. These are, um, this is the affirmation of our practice and of our faith, of where this path leads to. So when the Buddha said this, when he had this experience, this was the end of his search. Talked a little bit about his life and quest, all of the ascetic practices that he did to try and achieve awakening, how they didn't work, and finally sat under the Bodhi tree that night and had his full awakening. And this is what he said, the noble truth has This noble truth has been penetrated by realizing the cessation of suffering. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things that have not been heard of before. So he was considered self-awakened. That's literally the meaning of a Buddha. I'll talk later about arahants who are also fully awakened, but came to that through hearing teachings of others. A Buddha is self-awakened. So he says about things that have not been heard of before, he discovered this for himself. And since that time, many people have tasted this highest happiness. And there are beautiful descriptions in the texts and since then about what describing as best words can what this experience is like. One I really like is from, again, from the Buddha, where he talks about his awakening, and it's the famous stanza on the house builder. He says, seeking but not finding the house builder, and that's basically the ego, the sense of self. I, re- I travel through count- the round of countless births. Oh, painful is birth ever and again. House builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build the house again. Your rafters have been broken down, your ridge pole is shattered. 
my mind has attained the peace of nirvana and reached the end of every kind of craving. O house builder, you will not build the house again. And then again from the Anguttara, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands, and for them there is cultivation of the mind. So this luminous, bright mind, free of attachments, these are some of the descriptions of awakening. But as they say, these are but fingers pointing to the moon. We don't want to look at the finger to look at the moon itself, not to get lost in the techniques and the way, but what the aspiration is, what the, the uh, final answer is. But as the Buddha himself said, he solved his problem, now you solve yours. His enlightenment, as much as it inspires and can guide and teach us, does not enlighten us. And in fact, in his very last teaching, again, those famous words that he said, be a lamp or a light, an island unto yourself. Be your own refuge. Work out your own salvation, your own freedom. This is what this path is about. And so again and again, there's this pointing back to our own experience. This is not something we can just learn, that someone else can tell us, that someone else can give to us, but actually something we discover for ourselves, even though we can definitely benefit from guidance along the way. So there are many ways to talk about freedom, Nibbana, this third noble truth. We can talk about it as an immediate experience, just the experience of non-grasping, of non-attachment, is a pointer, is, is, a, is a taste of that. Some teachers say that any moment of mindfulness, pure moment of mindfulness, is actually free of greed, aversion, and delusion, and is a taste of nibbana, of the, of the fruit of the path. And I spoke in my last talk, even though it was about um, craving, about temporary nibbana. Buddha Dasa talking about the fact that all of us, he actually said every being, not just humans, but every being, has to know what he called temporary nibbana, this taste of coolness, this taste of the reduction in uh, the afflictions of the mind. And again, I think we're all here because we've had intimations of that spontaneously or through our practice and know that's what we're looking for. So there's that immediacy of experience that we can talk about. There's also the fact that this path, the one that we're on, if you feel you're on this path, the, the Theravada, path of Theravada Buddhism, is a grad, called a gradual path or gradual training. And there's a sense of development, really wise and patient development over time. And this is the essence of the teachings here, based on the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya, um, ethical conduct, meditation practice, and wisdom that I'll talk about next time. This is the Eightfold Path, again, in this 
cyclical referencing that leads to freedom. And so there's this sense of development and patience that is so important. In this tradition, we talk about four stages of awakening. Um, that there's a first stage called stream entry or sotapanna, and next one, uh, sakadagami, which is once returner, anagami, non-returner, and arahant, fully awakened one. And that with each one, there are these ten fetters or ten bindings, ten places of ignorance or contraction that we can get lost in and that they gradually get released. So this sense of gradual um, purification over time. Stream entry, the first of these, was spoken about a lot in the texts. Um, I mean, you can't read a page or so without someone popping off and getting awakened. And often it would happen just through hearing the Buddha's teachings. And I am going to be giving some of the Buddha's teachings tonight, so let me know know, if anything (laughs) happens. But it's very common in the text, both for monastics and for lay people, to have what they would term uh, the stainless vision of the Dhamma arising or the pure and spotless Dhamma eye awoke in this person or in sometimes multitudes of people. So this is said to be somewhat accessible, somewhat available. What happens with this first level of awakening is the first three fetters drop away. And these are the fetters of identity view, meaning belief in a solid, separate sense of self, doubt about the path and the practice, and belief in rites and rituals. Now, what's interesting about these, I actually give a a whole talk on the ten fetters and and what the process is in in their releasing and, and the different stages that happen and why they happen, what, why my understanding is of why they happen uh, in the order that they do. But this first one, as I said, in the text is, is fairly commonplace. Um, you know, it ha- happens again and again and again. And the Buddha gives different uh, pointers to what supports that kind of awakening. He says that Uh, association with the wise is necessary, hearing the true Dhamma is necessary, and careful or wise attention, yonasomanasikara, and practicing in accordance with the Dhamma. These are all the supports for this kind of awakening. Do those sound at all familiar to you? I mean, you can really see how what we're doing is creating the field the foundation for that kind of opening to be possible. This is the kind of uh, practice and and field that we create that might make that possible. In this, the first three fetters, what's interesting about them is, again, this is how I have, it's helped me to understand them, is they're basically conditioned and in some aspects, not completely, but in some aspects, conditioned or learned ways of relating to experience. 
Now, rites and rituals, you can really see that. Um, again, the Buddha in his time, there was a Brahmanical uh, society, a culture, where the Brahmins were the priests and they held all of the secrets to um, the spiritual life and they performed rites and rituals of purification and there was a lot of belief in purification through ritual, through fire rituals and water rituals and rituals of sacrifice of animals. It was very commonplace. And the Buddha just very clearly said, that's not the way. You cannot get awakened through just performing rites and rituals. And here in the 21st century, we say, well, yeah, of course, I know that. I know rites and rituals. I know, you know, science, rational. But look honestly at belief systems. You know, and there's one level of superstitions and good luck charms and, you know, the things that we pray to or whatever, you know, that we hold dear. Um, There's all kinds of ways that we do have these beliefs. Uh, strategies about how to develop on the path that actually aren't what the Buddha was was saying are helpful. And so we need to bring some clarification to that. And then, of course, identity view. You could say that is something that's very innate to being a human being, having this concept of self. But if you really look at what happens with a young baby, we learn that. A young baby doesn't feel separate. You know, they have to kind of go, oh, oh, that's my, that hurts when I bite that. That's my finger. And out there is other stuff that I can get. So we learn that sense of separation. And certainly we learn the limiting ways that we relate to ourselves. All of the conditioned views of who we are, Sky spoke about the other night, that limit or contract us, that don't allow us to fully be in the world with a sense of presence and aliveness. We learn that. And the beauty or the power of that is it means it can be unlearned. It's conditioned, therefore it can be unconditioned. So this is good news. As much as we might feel strongly identified, that very identification, that belief, is something conditioned that we've learned and can be unlearned. And of course, the same with doubt. Doubt, as we've talked about, are just words in the mind, ideas and concepts that keep us separate from what's actually true. So we can work with that. This is something we can actually bring our mindfulness to and our practice to. So there's, I think it's helpful to just look at what the Buddha is pointing to when he talks about stream entry as not some exotic, esoteric, out of, completely out of the realm of our ex- potential experience, but something that we can actually have a taste of as we refine our, the ways that we're confused about these aspects, confused around doubt, confused about rites and rituals and all of the beliefs and strategies we have, our conditioned sense of self, we can start to refine and actually bring mindfulness to. And so there is this sense of an offering of something or a teaching about something that's not so, you know, 
Maybe at the end of many lifetimes this might be a possibility, but certainly if you read the text, it's something, as I'll say later, more perhaps immediate than we might first think. So, I said earlier, there's many ways to talk about or even understand Nibbana. This is the word the Buddha used for the unconditioned or freedom. Um, There's even many ways to understand the experience itself in different traditions, different teachers within those traditions. We'll talk about it differently. Here in the West, there's a whole movement of what you might call secular Buddhism. And Stephen Batchelor is a you know, one of the leading lights of that movement. He's a dear friend, and I really appreciate his teachings. But his, where he has come to in his relationship to the Buddha's teachings is something like, and I'm probably doing him an injustice, but something like, you know, if I can't know it and experience it for myself, I'm just going to put it aside. And so things like karma or rebirth, those more, you could say, Um, big picture thinking, things that Stephen says were around at the time of the Buddha that the Buddha just incorporated, he doesn't include in his teachings. He doesn't think of that relevant for us. And his understanding of what Nibbana is, is just very knowable. These moments that are free of greed, aversion, and delusion, not some mystical experience. Stephen uh, used to have an email address that was um, agnostic, you know, Stephen agnostic at something.org. But he said, I've got to change that. He said, now I'm atheist at, you know, whatever.org. He's really so clear about this. And, you know, his earlier book that was um, very popular was called The Faith to Doubt. And it really looked into these questions. And he was really amazed at the the pushback that came from that, from the orthodoxy, because he was just, you know, raising questions as he thought it. But, you know, there are people who hold very strong views in this area. And then he wrote uh, his last latest book, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, really stoked the fire a little. (laughs) And actually, I'm not sure when this is happening, but sometime soon there's actually a gathering of secular Buddhists at BCBS, all of the agnostics and atheists are going to get together and Stephen and all these other people are going to probably enjoy each other's company talking about these things (laughs) with people that agree with them. And then, of course, there are people and traditions that hold that what we're talking about here is some kind of transcendent experience, some altered state, some cessation of our current way of knowing. That this is appointed to something outside that's unconditioned, that's not just a simple letting go, absence of, but something deeper and more profound. I don't want to or even think I could tonight attempt to resolve these, but just to to acknowledge that there are these different views and and a lot of debate about what is actually being pointed to here. But for us as practitioners, debates aren't so helpful. I really want to talk about how do we relate to this as meditators here, especially here on a long retreat like this. So let's look at what we're doing. We're practicing mindfulness to develop insight. What is the insight into? We've talked about different ways 
of looking at this, but primarily it's into our direct experience. And this is what is so powerful about the Buddha's teachings. It's not offering some, you know, out there, you know, somewhere we have to get to, but as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body is the world and the cessation of the world, is basically everything you need to know to come to awakening. So we turn directly to our experience and track it in this moment-to-moment way as we do here in meditation. We look with the lens of the three characteristics to see you know, that things are changing, that we're not in control. So we look on a very impersonal level, these, these universal characteristics. And we also investigate on a very personal and intimate level our own particular forms of craving and clinging and aversion and conditioning and judging. So both, both are really important, both are relevant. And through both of them, we begin to track for ourselves what causes suffering, what does that feel like, and what is it like when it's released, when we let go, when we, when we find our way out of some struggle or challenge. We do this, of course, in the context of all the teachings of the Buddha's words and then the, the practice of all the people who've come before. So we don't do it alone, but it is ultimately something that we do alone. <laughs> so we, we do it with others, but we do Stephen Batcher actually has another great book, Alone with Others, just to point to the essential nature of this human experience and that our awakening will happen in within this set of aggregates, this set of sense doors. So we examine our experience and just as the Four Noble Truths point to, we have to understand the nature of suffering and its cause. So we get very familiar with, right? Greed, aversion and delusion. We've been talking a lot about that. And particularly this practice that Sayadu Tejaniya talks about of noticing Is greed present? Is aversion present? Is delusion present? Am I wanting something to happen, not happen, keep happening? Do I know what's happening? So this reference point of greed, aversion, and delusion. But these are strong words, right? Greed, you know, it really sounds like we're out there. Aversion, we've got the hatchets out to, you know, chop away at what we don't like. And delusion, it just sounds like we're completely lost. And I'm sure we all have our moments of that amount of drama. You know what what we're talking about when we talk about these terms. You've experienced them. But a lot of the time it's more subtle than that, isn't it? It's just this shifting movements of the mind out of restlessness looking to get something else. Looking not so much about getting objects, because greed often seems like I want something. When I look at my mind, it's not so much about objects and material possessions, you know, a little bit, sure, but not so much. It's more about manipulating experience to have it be the way I would want. And it's all of the objecting, organizing, and obsessing. How much time do you spend in those kind of mind states? Objecting, 
Well, I didn't like that that happened. Why did they look at me that way? And I wish I hadn't eaten so much at lunch. And, you know, what, why are they doing it like that? I wish they did laundries on Wednesdays instead of Saturday. Or, you know, whatever it is that the mind goes to, we just have that sense of not quite rightness. And then the organizing, the planning, and of course, obsessing we do about both. But how much time have you spent planning on this retreat? Wouldn't it be embarrassing if we all had to fess up? But it would actually probably be a relief because you see everyone else is doing it too. I mean, we all do. I, I, I haven't seen this movie, but I heard of a movie that was, it was something about where time became a commodity and you could buy and sell it. And so, you know, people who didn't have much would give their time away to people who had money. How much time have you wasted building sandcastles in the air of a future that doesn't exist and for all intents and purposes will never exist? I mean, really to start to look at it that way and that this is how we cultivate delusion by actually believing in these sandcastles of the mind. And the Buddha said again and again that this is what the uninstructed worldling does. And I'm afraid to tell you that is who we are. The uninstructed worldling will do this. And what's at the center of this is that it's all about me. It's all about my likes and my dislikes and what I want. And this is this belief in self that I was talking about earlier that gets strengthened by this objecting and organizing and obsessing. It just creates solidity there. Mindfulness, what the practice is pointing to is to be available to experience, to be open and receptive and curious. This kind of mind state that we often find ourselves in, the objecting, the organizing, the obsessive, is preoccupied. It's even more than that. It's me-occupied. It's just filling up the airwaves with it's all about me. What about me? What does this mean about me? How does this affect me? How does this reflect on me? What do they think about me? What does she think about me? What did they think about me yesterday? I hope they like me tomorrow. You know, the mind can just go on and on about that. But as we get more in touch with our direct experience, we see, we start to see the limitation of that as a way of being how constricted it is, how unsatisfactory it is, and how it literally is a source of suffering. And it's why we teach the Brahma-viharas on a retreat like this is because they're real pointers to the possibility of an open heart or a compassionate heart or a joyful heart. And that heart is not constricted. It's not focused only on my happiness and my well-being. It really has this sense of opening up and offering um, our love and our affection and our compassion in this open-handed way to other beings, other people. So we start this exploration in the immediacy of our own experience about suffering and the cause of suffering. And then we start to understand for ourselves what the Buddha is pointing to. He's pointing to the possibility of the ending of suffering, the ending 
of greed, aversion, and delusion, whether it's momentary or permanent in the case of an arahant or a fully enlightened being. Again and again, the texts describe this freedom as the ending or the uprooting of greed, aversion, and delusion. This word nibbana that the Buddha uses for freedom, for this awakening, literally means cool. In Thailand, they've used, taken a lot of the Pali words and, and used them in there every day. And so you could say something like, let the, the, the rice nibbana or let the hot tea nibbana, let it cool, let that fire be quenched. And so there's a lot of imagery of fire and coolness in the suttas. And if you've ever been to India, you will know what the Buddha was talking about. It's a very hot country most of the year, really hot. And so images of coolness were very appealing, that this heat um, was, was suffering and coolness was ease and freedom. And so also a lot of it, fire images, putting out the fire. And if you remember when I talked about the second noble truth of tanha, that craving literally, tanha literally means unquenchable thirst. And so nibbana is coolness. It has that sense of quenching the unquenchable thirst. And so these imagery of fire, is, is, it's actually really um, beautiful. Fires can be beautiful, but if you look at it, they're agitated, right? If a fire is really flaming, there's all of this movement and flickering and light and color changing. And what the Buddha is talking about isn't getting a great big old bucket of water and (laughs) dumping it on that fire, but taking away the fuel. So there's often these images of it's a very graceful process, you could say almost, taking away the fuel so the fire actually just goes out, doesn't have the fuel to keep it flaming, the heat of desire or aversion. And that agitation of the fire just naturally dies down. This is what the Buddha is pointing to. And we don't often talk a lot in depth about this pointing because it is hard to talk about. It's why the Buddha used imagery a lot. Because he didn't want people to grasp onto something, you know, again, like the finger pointing to the moon, to take the words as being solid or true or to define the experience in some clear way. But that, for many of us, has led to a lack that we haven't acknowledged the power and the depth of the Buddha's path and what he talks about again and again in the suttas. So Ajahn's Pasano and Amaro, at the time they were both co-abbots of our local monastery of Bayagiri, recognized that there wasn't um, enough appreciation of the power of these teachings. And so they created this great compilation called The Island. And the title is taken from that text that I mentioned just briefly on the Buddha's Parinibbana. His last teaching was to be an island to yourself, find a refuge for yourself. So they called it the island, and it's an anthology of the Buddha's teachings on Nibbana. And it's just a great collection of 
excerpts straight from the suttas, commentaries on those excerpts, their own understanding, and more recent um, both Asian and Western uh, discussions of Nibbana. Really a great book, and it's available free from Abhayagiri or online as a PDF. So it's a great reference just to see how much the Buddha talked about this, how important it was in his teaching, and how skillful he was in relating to different people, and how he talked about awakening and the everyday analogies and metaphors, these beautiful metaphors that he used to connote this possibility of ease and peace and freedom. He said about Nibbana, it is visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. Immediate, inviting, and attractive, comprehensible to the wise. So again and again, he said, it's immediate. Ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Not something that you have to, you know, go through some intermediary to experience or even to become ordained to experience, but comprehensible to the wise. So there's the pointing to and then the freedom from. We've t- I've talked already a lot about it's freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion, how they themselves are suffering. And we start to understand as we look at our experience how we have developed them as strategies to avoid suffering, even though they actually cause suffering. They're strategies to acquire what we want and avoid what we don't want. Understandable why they've been strengthened. But as I was reflecting on what I wanted to say tonight, I wanted to point to something that I think is very potent in this area, and that is so much of those strategies come out of fear. And a lot of what we're actually looking for is freedom from fear. The fear of not being loved, the fear of not getting what we want, being separated from what we don't want, from not being seen or heard or accepted. This is a deep fear for most of us. And all of these strategies a kind of manipulations to address that fear in unfortunately often unskillful ways. The Dalai Lama said something like, all unwholesome mind states come out of fear. And so often our practice is being willing to stay and track experience to get to that place of contraction, the fear that Guy spoke about the other night that can be so overwhelming for us and it can come out of our personal struggles and challenges or as we open to these deeper teachings of impermanence or not-self and we feel the groundlessness, the fear can come. So it really needs to be included in our practice. The fear of not being able to do this. A number of you have spoken about this. Not being able to get it right. How many times have you had the sense that pretty much everyone else here is getting this except me, you know? But it can't be true because we can't all have that thought and have it be right, right? So some of us have to be getting this, and maybe most of us are, but we can have this thought, this fear. I can't do this. I may even have a, a sense of what my aspiration is, but the contraction is, I can't do this. 
I'm doing it wrong. I don't know how to do it right. Just again to see this is doubt. This is Mara trying to push you off your seat. Not allow this possibility of freedom to really grow and deepen in you. As the Buddha said, this freedom is attractive, available, present, comprehensible to the wise. So this pointer to what, the, what, what this is, again, the, when the Buddha talked about it, he often talked about it as what it was not. It was, it was, or what it was free from. Talked about it in the negative. Again, not to solidify what these teachings are pointing to. So there is this famous list of the 33 synonyms for freedom, for Nibbana. And this is from the Samyutta. The cessation of greed, of hatred, and of, and of delusion is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the taintless, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the very hard to see, the peace, the unweakening, the everlasting, the undisintegrating, the invisible, the undiversified, the deathless, the supreme goal, the blessed, safety, exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, non-distress, the naturally non-distressed, nibbana, non-affliction, fading of lust, purity, freedom, independence of reliance, the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. All of these different ways, some in a negation, not this, not that, and others pointing to the island, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. Ways of pointing to this experience, this possibility that each of us have some sense of. It brings us to practice, it keeps us practicing, this possibility. As I talked about, this temporary Nibbana, we've all had moments here on this retreat and your willingness to acknowledge that, to recognize that for yourself, is what allows this path to keep opening and keep deepening. As Ajahn Chah says in Food for the Heart, but really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful, just like a leaf, which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to these sense in, those sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions, we will be unmoved. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. We must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. 
we must train our mind to know these sense impressions. So we use the body, the mind, to know them and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So it's just this stillness when we're not so lost, not so caught, not flooded by the sense impressions that come. They still come. There's no question of that. But this is why we do this difficult practice, put ourselves through this, as Ajahn Chah says. There's this great saying, enlightenment is an accident, but retreats make us accident prone. So we put ourselves in the place where it's more likely to happen, where it's supported. And luckily, because the Buddha came to his awakening and taught and gave his dispensation, we have a path and we have practices and we have guides. Um, so we, we can use that, that sense of being in, being held by that. Again, this is from the island. The gradual nature of the path needs to be recognized in order to summon the appropriate spiritual resources. The foremost of these is patience. Not the patience of mindlessly enduring something, waiting for it to finally end, but rather of applying a steady clarity of attention to the path without shrinking back or running away from its inherent obstacles. Having made the commitment to train ourselves, we need to follow through with consistency and determination. The fruits of the training do not magically appear They reveal themselves in their own time, requiring a skillful, steady application of effort. For example, one of the common ways of teaching the training fundamentals is to emphasize the qualities of generosity, virtue, and meditation. When one is generous and delights in giving, the heart tends to be satisfied and joyous. This supports the cultivation of virtue, as a heart that is satisfied and contented, easily inclines to restraint and composure. With this composure, together with the lack of remorse that, vo- that virtue affords, the heart is easily settled and focused. Meditation thus progresses more smoothly, and the mind naturally brightens, making it suitable for seeing things as they truly are. So there's this natural circular process that happens. The more clearly we see, the more refined the mind gets, the more integrity and ethical conduct, and then there's more contentment, and that leads to more opening and more wisdom. To really feel this possibility, not of something mysterious or magical, but that we do and we train in, and we start to recognize for ourselves what brings happiness what brings freedom, what brings contentment, and what doesn't. We start to see that in the immediacy of the mindfulness. This becomes apparent. And we start to see things as they are. This is the definition of Dhamma, to see things as they are, to align with the Dhamma, to align with the truth of things, rather than living out of our projections and our filters and our ideas and our agendas and concepts the way we're lost in past and future, we start to align and be in 
the present moment and see that peace is possible because we've tasted it. We've had that experience and we see there's a path to peace, as that quote just said, and that it's doable. Bhikkhu Bodhi said there are only two things you need to be successful in your spiritual practice. Only two things. You writing these down? Start and then continue. And it's so true. Start and then continue. I want to talk just a little bit about a practice. That, so that's the, the really the gradual path and how we can train ourselves. But there are also refinements to the meditation that can point more clearly to what the Buddha is talking about, this freedom. I mentioned earlier that there are these ten fetters that go, some, some go quickly, some go gradually, on the progression to enlightenment. Two of the last fetters to go are restlessness and conceit. This is both good and bad news. Good news in the sense of why we struggle so much with them. They're they're very deeply ingrained and hard because they're going to be around for some time. You better get used to working with them. But when these terms are used in this context, it's not talking about restlessness of, you know, I just can't bear to sit here or conceit, you know, I'm good, I'm bad. It's these very subtle movements of mind at these deep levels of our being, pulling away from or moving towards experience, reifying experience at the deepest, most subtle levels of our experience. And there's an excerpt from a sutta I've always loved because it both points to the, the depth and the subtlety of these kinds of experience, but also to the humanity of these are people. These stories we hear are not that different. Some ways they're quite different. Not that, but some essential ways also just human beings. This is a conversation that Venerable Anuruddha, who was already, my memory is third stage awakened, had to Sariputta, who was one of the Buddha's foremost disciples. Then Venerable Anuruddha went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish, My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness, ekagata, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. So he's got this amazing experience. He's seeing the thousand-fold cosmos and energy and psychic abilities, and yet he hasn't been fully released. Sariputta kind of shakes his head and says, My friend, when the thought occurs to you, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. That is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish. 
My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unperturbed. My mind is concentrated into singleness. singleness. That is related to your restlessness. When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element. So after that, the Venerable Anuruddha, abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, directed his mind to the deathless element. Dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent and resolute, he in no long time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life for which people rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew birth is ended, the holy life is fulfilled, the task is done. There is no more coming into any state of being, and thus Venerable Anuruddha became another one of the Arahants. Now this is a very refined state of practice, but there's something in here that I think we can learn from, and that's this inclining the mind to the deathless. If you remember, the deathless is one of the synonyms for Nibbana. And in the monastic teachings, uh, uh, Amaravati literally means the deathless realm, the name of Ajahn Sumedho's monastery. He talks about it all the time. The gates to the deathless are open, meaning it's possible to have this direct experience of this kind of stillness and ease. But it has to come out of a shift of perspective. And even in the commentary on this text in the island, they say it wasn't that he had to completely change his practice or do something radically different. By not paying attention to this, but paying attention to that, his mind was released. So we have to begin to preferring stillness to distraction, silence to noise, space rather than object, letting go rather than holding on, letting go of disturbance, agitation. And a number of you have commented in the interviews, oh, I'm not feeling as mindful as I should be, but I keep telling you, you don't realize that if you had two weeks ago the mindfulness you had today, you have today, you would feel it as something very palpable. So there's always a possibility for more and more releasing, more and more letting go. It gets more subtle, but our recognizing of this for ourselves is part of this pointing these gaps and spaces between thought, between obsessions, between holding on, literally the letting go. In those moments, we can begin to know that, this stillness of mind, this imperturbability, even tastes of it. They give us, as Guy was saying, the the sniff of the bread factories. You follow that. Um, and it's onward leading. And so we begin to trust our experience that this mind and this body can actually know peace, 
no freedom. Again, great degrees of variation in that. Might be just a taste, but that taste is important and it's what we can practice for. And that happiness isn't to be found out there or by getting things right, by doing it right, by manipulating experience to be a certain way, but rather by fully accepting here and now ourselves and our experience and seeing the gradual cultivation of patience and equanimity and kindness are what will allow us to turn our minds to the deathless. As Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. You let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. You let go completely, you get complete peace. So let's just sit for a moment and let the words settle. Thank you for your attention. We're listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.